Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear these final words of our Lord. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that he might, that scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, Luke tells us that with these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he then breathed his last. Dear friends, words, throughout the course of these Lenten weeks, we've considered well the very words that Christ chose to deliver to us with his dying breath. We know they're more than merely syllables on the air of his increasingly laborious exhalings. They're far more than that. Remember what the 17th century Englishman said, James Howell? He said, words are ambassadors of the soul. They're agents. They're heralds of our heart's desire. Friends, our dying Lord meant what he said, and with all of his heart, he said what he meant. Recall the first word from his lips was the plea for paternal pardon of all of those, all of us, who so often know not what we do. Then were those words of promised paradise for all, like that Calvary criminal, all who would lift their eyes and sighs unto him, trusting in his work and in his words, truly paradise for them all. And we heard in his third word just how our Lord, both for his mother and recall for his bride, the church, how he was putting things in order for her, us, having left his father and his mother and now clinging to his bride. It was a word of preparation and providential arrangement. And recall last week we heard the silence of forsakenness. And then we heard those chilling but those thrilling Words that assure us that because he was forsaken, we never will be. Having delivered to us seven final sentences, that leaves us tonight with three. Certainly, while each word of our Lord, it's well worth our consideration. Tonight, we'll fix our eyes and our ears upon this word. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Yogi Berra. Many of you will remember the famed baseball legend with that strange name, Yogi. Yogi Berra, who was not born Yogi Berra, but really his name is Lawrence Peter Berra, made his major league debut in a New York Yankees uniform in September of 1946. Three years later, by 1949, he'd already become a perennial favorite with baseball fans playing in consecutive or near-consecutive All-Star games from 1949 to 62. Barra was a three-time American League Most Valuable Player. Even though 40 years and more have passed since his final game, Barra, Yogi Barra, is still a name of fame. Certainly famous for playing with and managing baseball teams, Barra is also almost equally famous for some of his words. Over the years, he's logged quite a list of notable phrases that, because they are somehow strangely true, have become part and parcel of American language and culture. Some of these you know well. 
Yogi Bear is the one who said it. He said it's deja vu all over again. Or maybe you recall when he said nobody goes there anymore. Speaking of a certain restaurant, he said nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. But perhaps his most famous, and the yogiism as they've come to be known, his most famous and the most used would be the one that rolled off his tongue after his 1973 match came from nine and a half games back to win their division on the second to the last day of the regular season. Recall what he said. Equipped, it ain't over till it's over. Now in the grand scheme, baseball is very trivial. But the thought isn't. Until something is over and done, it's not really over and done, is it? It may be all but over, as the saying goes, but it's only over when it's over. It's only done when it's done. Consider the contest our Lord was engaged in upon the cross. It was not trivial. Sin and its death, to which it's so interconnected, Sin and death and hell had killed the crown of his creation and he was fighting to win it back again. He was dying to bring it back to life again. Now you know the reason that he was there fighting and dying. You know the reason that he was there. It was because we as sinners had created the mess in the first place. It was because we as sinful people are not going to be the solution to our own deadly dilemma. We're the problem. We're not going to be the fix. You remember how another well-used saying goes. It goes right to the point here. Like father, like son. That's the problem, isn't it? Like father, like son. We're no different than our fathers and they no different from theirs. You see, we've all inherited the malady of sin and its due wages. We've all inherited them from our first father and mother. And that's indeed what scripture says. When it says, St. Paul writes in Romans, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. In other words, like father, like son. And indeed, that's true, isn't it? Like father, like son. And it's true not, not only that we would be of that same fallen condition and therefore all equally need that salvation that comes from outside of us, but it's true also in the sense that, that we would so often embrace the same transgressions as our parents do when we speak of actual sin and not only inherent sin or original sin. But so often we embrace the same transgressions as, as our parents perhaps did, falling in the same ways and to the same things and vices. So often like father, like son. Friends, when it comes to our salvation, when it comes down to the deliverance from our transgressions and sin's mess, to use yet another phrase, mind you here, God does not help those who try to help themselves. He came to the cross precisely because we could not. And St. Paul reminded us in Sunday's epistle reading because it was impossible for us to help ourselves. But for us men as we confess in that creed. And for our salvation. That's why he came down from heaven. That's why he was made man. That's why he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified. Died and, and buried. And that's the battle. Of Calvary. That's the contest. 
there of the cross. And the crucifixion portrait painted by the brush strokes and the words of, of the gospel writers portrayed really in, in a crucifix like this that, that so vividly displays to us the fierceness of the battle. The battle of Calvary is that battle that took place within the Lord's body and his soul. And did we ever hear that vividly in, in, in the Old Testament reading today as Isaiah prophesied of the suffering both in the, in the flesh and in the soul of the Messiah? In his body and in his soul, friends, it's, it's there that the extra cosmic juggernaut-like forces of heaven and hell and life and death collided with the impact of eternal force in his body and soul. And from it, the percussion of that collision is heard to the outermost reaches and days of all eternity. In his body and in his soul, it's where the war for the world was waged and where divine justice was satisfied, where every one of your sins and mine and the world over, where they all were atoned for once and for all people and all time. That's exactly what Peter writes. Peter, by his own hand, he wrote, he himself bore our sins in his own body, in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to those sins, might live for righteousness, he says, by his stripes, quoting Isaiah, you are healed. Stop and think about that phrase for a minute. I'm sure Peter did. I'm sure Peter did. Can you imagine? Can't you imagine Peter? Peter writing his rough fish net worn hand, now equipped with the, the, the quill of divine inspiration. Can't you imagine Peter as his hand moved across that page, spelling out those divinely inspired words? What ambassadors of good news they were. For who was Peter, remember, but him who in cowardice, we're going to hear that in just over a week, in cowardice, denied even knowing his Lord, even as his Lord was making his way to the cross for him. And for those who in fear or in defiance would not know him, that's who Peter had been. But, but imagine, imagine how his hand must have paused there after punctuating the last phrase. Imagine how his hand must have paused and how his eyes must have read and reread those words. Read and reread those words until they could be read no longer for tears. Not tears of bitter remorse. No, but now joyful tears welling up in relief. Because what had been written, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That's what was going on there. That's what was going on there. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to those sins in him might live for righteousness because by his stripes you're healed. Whatever has brought your tears of repentant remorse, whether they be inward or outward, whatever, it too has been put to death 
and buried in Christ Jesus. It is finished. If it's not over till it's over, then mark these words. It is finished. And it's over. You see the critical and the beautiful nature of those three little words? At one and the same time, sin's grip on us has lost its deadly hold. It's done. And this precisely because because Christ has completed the task for which he came. Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And on the cross, that Christ announces, it is finished. Make no mistake about it, friends. When our Lord says it's finished, he means it. It's finished. But you know that our human nature has that unholy tendency. And as the saying goes, we don't leave well enough alone, do we? And so, often by our own efforts, we try to improve upon what Christ has already accomplished. But I ask you, how? How can our greatest or even our least effort better what our Lord has already determined finished? Friends, breathe easy. He wants you to. He died so that you could. Breathe easy and cherish his words. It is finished and what's done is done. As brief as this little phrase is, three little words, it is finished. It packs scripture's most powerful punch. These three words embody the person and all the redeeming work of Christ Jesus. You you want to know what's even more impressive about about these three words? In the Greek, it's but one word. Tetelestai. One singular word to sum up the countless words and works of Christ on his way to the cross and even Christ upon the cross. One word. Tetelestai. But the word doesn't necessarily mean simply ended or done like when the movie credits roll up and it says the end. And then you know it's time to throw your popcorn out and it's done. To telestai, the word actually carries with it the meaning of accomplishment. To telestai literally means it is brought to its intended end and fulfillment. Not just ended, but completed. Not just done, but finished. It's this kind of completion, this kind of finishing that we see in the life of one 7th century Christian. He was called the Venerable Bede. One of the greatest Christian scholars of his time, he was devoted to the translation of the Bible from the Latin into the English of his day, an English that we would scarcely recognize. In the last year of his life, he'd been working hard on the translation of the Gospel according to St. John, some of which you heard read tonight. But a disease had fastened itself onto him and he could hardly go on due to weakness. At last, on the morning of Ascension Day, his pupil encouraged him, saying, Dear Master, there is but but one chapter yet to do. Though scarcely able to work, Bede commanded him, Take your pen and write quickly. He continued at intervals throughout the day in great weakness and in pain. And then when night came, there by his master's bedside in the candlelight, 
The pupil bent over his master's deathbed and he whispered to him. He said, Master, there is just one sentence more. And Bede, heavy in breath, wasted no words. He said, write quickly. Only once more did the pupil speak. And he said, you see, dear master, is finished now. And once more, the master answered. He said, yes, you speak truly, it is finished. And thus he died. Friends, our Lord's endeavor left no word unwritten. It left no transgression unatoned for. It left no work to be done. It is finished. And that's his word to you. His thirst for your salvation compelled him to finish the task. He did. And finally, it being finished, St. Luke records our last spoken word of his from the cross. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said it, he bowed his head and he breathed his last. Confident that he has indeed finished it all, his last spoken word tonight can be our last spoken word tonight when we lay ourselves down to rest. And it can be our last word in every night when the day is past and we think on what we may have done or, or left undone. Confident in his completed work, his last words from the cross tonight can be our last and our greatest confidence when we too bow our heads and we draw our last breath. Confident in Christ, covered in all that he has done and all that he has not left undone, but finished in calm stillness and in confident peace, we can make his word our last word too. Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. These, the seven words of his from the cross, they are his faithful ambassadors. They're his heralds that have gone out from that cross into countless generations bearing the good news that Christ so intended that they bring. In these last Lenten weeks, he has sent them to us so that we might know too how dearly he loves us and how certainly he has saved us. His words of assurance even unto his dying breath. May these words of his be our strength and our stay, and indeed they will be, until we too would breathe our last. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.